Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we have Bridget Riley Beauchamp, who I met in probably August. She was the wardrobe supervisor for all the shows that we did at the TLA with Opera Philadelphia's 018 Festival. I think I'd seen her in 017 because you worked on, was it pre? No, I was at the Barnes with, um, ah, uh, whatever. Lisa Marie and uh, B. Yes. So we've done 017 and 018 together, but this year I actually got to work with her and it was awesome to have the same wardrobe supervisor on all three Queens of the Night and Nikki Tepa because there is some some consistency there in, in the madhouse <laughs> that was the TLA this season. Uh, but Bridget is also the founding and artistic director of Poly and Buttonhole Theater, which is a company outside of Philadelphia. And her husband is the TD there, so it's a whole family event. So I brought her on for all of these reasons. Because we love, we've not actually talked to a wardrobe supervisor before, I think. We've talked to a couple designers, but not really people who have actually are there and the hands-on working the shows backstage. So to start, and you kind of know how we work because you've listened to a couple of the podcasts, how did you get into theater and how did you, well, I would say get into costuming, but you do kind of everything in the theater. So how did you get there? Uh, well, I was always that theater kid in school, in elementary school and in high school. And when I was a junior or senior in high school, I decided I wanted to be a stage manager. So I went to college and got my undergrad in theater and French, which basically assured that I'd have no real world skills. <laughs> it's like history. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? It really locked me into a career path at a young age. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I got my first job stage managing at a theater actually near where the TLA is, but the theater itself exists no longer. It was a Society Hill Playhouse um, in Philadelphia. And when I was working there, I met someone who was working at the Walnut and he introduced me to the costume supervisor there. And so I wound up working there. And through working there, I was introduced by a props guy to the head of the wardrobe union, um, which is how I started working in wardrobe. Um, and at the same time, I stage managed summer stock down in um, Shenandoah, which is where I met my husband. He was playing in the pit. Um, oh, we, interesting. <laughs> we were doing Hello Dolly, which, as you know, is an incredibly boring show to call. Uh, <laughs> so ample free time to flirt across the stage. Um, That's so, always awesome. Good, good job. <laughs> yes. Um, and then I came back and I sort of, I got a call to work showboat, the first national tour of showboat in Philadelphia. And that's how I started working with the local. And um, then I got a, through that, I started working dressing for the opera, which is how I met the former costume director, Richard St. Clair, who is now um, the professor of costume at Penn State. And then when he left, I stayed on as his assist as the assistant for Millie for the first year, which is how I met. Oh, Millie. Um, okay. And I had actually my youngest uh, was one at the time. So she was coming to work with me. And after that first year with Millie, Siobhan was just a little too active to go to a costume shop every day. Um, <laughs> so I sort of rolled back into um, 
into just dressing. And then when the 017 festival started, Millie asked me to come on as the wardrobe supervisor for one of the operas. So that's, and then I met you. Yay. Yay. Um, and it was also right around the time that I left uh, working for the opera is when I started Feline Buttonhole because I wanted to do something that was a little more creative. And that was sort of what I'd always wanted to be when I grew up. And I was 40 and decided I should probably grow up. <laughs> I guess it's time to grow up. I guess I'll do that. <laughs> well, before I get in, we get into pulling a buttonhole, can, what is it that you do as a costume or as a wardrobe supervisor? Because we've talked to designers, mm-hmm. but we've never actually talked to somebody who like supervises the actual day-to-day and running of the show. So what is it that you do backstage or in prep for a show? Sure. So my job is basically to ensure that the show that the designer has created is maintained through the run of the show. Um, so, you know, my job is to make sure that the actors have everything they need, um, to put the clothes on and go out on stage looking the way the designer envisioned them. So we do maintenance on the clothes, whether that's laundry or dry cleaning. Um, we do all the repairs. We make sure, you know, if somebody puts a run in their hose, we make sure that they have the same pair of hose for the next performance. Um, you know, we're the ones that, you know, especially like in um, Nikki Tepa, when they got undressed on stage, we were the ones responsible for making sure all of those pieces got back um, and got restored <laughs> so that they could be worn the next day or the next opera. <laughs> right, right. So we could load load everything in and out on a right. daily so basis. We could put it all in a truck and take it back out. <laughs> Did you have a so lot of ex- sorry? I'm Did sorry, you have no. a lot of experience doing costumes? Like you said, you did a bunch of stuff growing up and then you went in and you did French and stage management and theater. Did you do your own sewing and stuff on your own or how did you learn to do costumes to even be able to get into a supervisor costuming position? Um, Well, when I got to college, I was one of the few people who knew how to sew when I got there. I had learned as a kid. Um, And so I sort of wound up when I wasn't working in stage management, I was working in the costume shop. Um, So I came out of college with basically sort of almost like a combination stage management costume design track if such a thing had existed which yeah. that's kind of what I did I yeah, have a yeah. degree like I did stage management for all the shows mm-hmm. but I spent all of my free time working in the costume shop for four mm-hmm. years yeah. so I think it was technically like eight hours in the beginning and by the end sometimes I was doing 20 30 hours a week just depending yeah. on what needed to get done in the show yeah but, and then in the evenings I would stage manage a show and then I would go back and work in the costume yeah. shop Right. I mean, there were shows where I was stage managing my work study was in the costume shop. So I was mm-hmm. sort of doing both. And then act- what really happened was that I had intended to go into stage management. And then once I got married and we had kids, it just felt like stage management and family was a big piece to juggle. Whereas yes. um, my husband actually works full time as a teacher. So working wardrobe gave me gave us the opportunity to sort of I was home during the day with the kids. He was home at night with the kids. It allowed us to juggle jobs and family. That makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'm sensible. (laughs) It's part of that grown-up thing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So then you mentioned that you'd always wanted to, did you always want to start your own theater company or you always wanted to be an artistic director? I always wanted to start my own company. And I actually always wanted to start my own company with this name. The name comes really? the name comes from a poem um, by a Palestinian American poet named Naomi Shihab Nye. And the poem is called Famous. And the quote is, I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous or a buttonhole. 
not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. And this is the thing I can do. That is really awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I sort of carried that around. I tell people I carried this theater company around with me in my heart from the time I was 16 and that now I get to make it come true. So how long has this company been in existence? We are in our sixth producing season. Congrats. That's pretty good. Thank yeah, you. that's a good job. Thank you. Yeah, we're yeah. getting there. <laughs> how was it to get started? Like, do you, I mean, Stacy started a company, but how is how is that? Like, you have the idea in your head. How do you actually make it come to fruition? Well, I was really lucky that I had no idea what I was doing. So I had no idea. <laughs> what I was doing. That helps. Kind of how, kind of how um, I started, too. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that is the most beneficial, though, because you don't have this pressure of like, well, I have to do it this way and I have to do it this way. You're like, well, right. this makes the most sense. So I guess this is how I'll do it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I started out offering classes and camps for kids. Um, I would do this thing that I called barn and blanket theater from that great, you know, like that Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, I've got a barn, I've got a blanket, let's put on a show. So <laughs> we would just sort of like use whatever we had to create shows. And they'd, you know, they'd be like four week, six week camps that I would do with kids. Um, and so I did that to raise a little money. And then I would write, I wrote a series of radio plays called The Actor, which were all, they're set in like 1930s Broadway and they're mysteries, they're murder mysteries, basically. Um, where this the, the main character, the actor, is constantly getting accidentally accused of murdering various actors and stagehands and has to you know, <laughs> prove his innocence. Um, <laughs> so we would put those on because they were free because I had written them. And then once we had enough money to sort of mount a production, I did Our Town. Um, you know, if you're going to go, if you're going to go, go with the classics. Um, right. Simple set and, and simple costumes and don't right. have to do a ton on tech. <laughs> right. Um, and so from there, we just sort of slowly built our season. We started, you know, then we added another play to the season now. And currently we do, um, three main stage shows as a, a reading of a developing work. And then we do, um, a Shakespeare, an outdoor Shakespeare in the summer. Um, and along the way, you know, my Josh, my husband has been with us since the very beginning. My sister, Megan is a huge part of the company. Um, my platonic life partner, Chris, who we've known each other since we were each other's prom date in, in high school, <laughs> um, is the managing director. And we have a tremendous stage manager, Allie, who just, they're sort of like the core group that has really, you know, invested in this dream of mine and really done what it takes to make it happen. That's so, I love that you started small and then grew. Cause I feel a lot of companies have big dreams and big ideals. And then, you know, it kind of takes a while to get going. Right. Yeah, no, we've always, mine. we've always financed one show off the next. We've never run in the red, um, knock wood. Um, wow. And I really, we're controlling our growth because yeah, we don't want to get out of control. We don't want to wind up bigger than we can sustain. Yeah. Do you guys have an, uh, a venue that you work at or do you go to different venues? Um, currently we're very lucky. Um, we perform out of a parish hall at the Episcopal church in our neighborhood. Um, we're starting to think it's time to look for a more permanent space because we sort of load in and load out per show. Mm -hmm. which means My basement is very, very full. Right. <laughs> and Storage. my attic is very, very full. <laughs> um, so yeah, our next step is, is establishing sort of a full-time space of our own. That'd be 
That'd be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. How is it being, do you notice anything being a female starting your own company? Did you, I guess both like financially in the business world, but also just being a woman in charge? Um, I'm very fortunate in that I have surrounded myself with really intelligent, really talented people, the majority of whom happen to be women. Um, we are definitely a woman led, woman driven company. Um, and we actually, our whole outlook is, is, I would call us a feminist based theater company. The majority of our work is, is intended to elevate, um, female artists and artists of color and LGBTQ artists. Um, so we're really trying to make sure that, that the voices that the stories that we're telling are stories that resonate with us. Yeah. I see that, that one of your so shows wonderful. coming up is called a woman of no importance, which sounds yeah. great. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. many people are yeah, like, yeah, not wild. important. Oscar Wilde. Great. So it's, it's probably going to be entertaining and fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We actually opened last weekend. We have our second weekend coming up. Um, and it's, you know, my my joke for a while was I, I we were on a streak of only producing uh, female authors. And so I was like, all right, I'll do a male author, but only if he's gay. So we did. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Yeah. That, is, that is really cool. I mean, a, a big thing that Stacey and I talk about regularly is just being women in a, in a theater world and kind of like you, we've both been pretty fortunate throughout our, our careers of working with strong women, but also working with men that treat us as equals and not really having too much difficulty. I mean, always there's, there's a little bit of difficulty now and then, but for the most part, not too much, but I don't think we've ever really worked in a theater that was, that did predominant like female roles or, um, I mean, in opera, actually, that like doesn't even exist right now. No, that would be awesome <laughs> if it did exist. But no. no. Oh, look, there's one woman and five men. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. But even just composers and librettists, like they're just now starting to come out, and partly that's because Opera America a few years ago started an initiative for female librettists and composers, and they're really one of the only reasons why things are actually starting to get written by females. But you know, even the classics are mostly male. So do you have a hard time finding female uh, um, playwrights or? We're really there, you know, things like the Kilroy's list, which is, you know, a list that's put out every year of female playwrights is hugely helpful. We do a lot of sort of wading through catalogs. We tend to program mm -hmm. our seasons around a central theme, um, which helps. So um, for instance, our theme last year was Persist. It was, you know, so all of nice. our playwrights were women. All of our directors were women. All of our designers were women, um, with the exception of my husband. Bless him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got you to gotta have him in there every now and then. <laughs> very patient man, my husband. Um, you know, this year, with the exception of A Woman of No Importance, um, we're doing the Penelope ad by Margaret Atwood. We're doing, um, in May, we're doing two plays by three contemporary African female playwrights. Um, that I'm really excited about. One, um, Adang Judith is from Uganda, and then Tembi Moyo is from Zimbabwe. Um, and then our our uh, one night stand, which is our staged reading, is um, by a member of our board, Teresa Miller, who's a Philadelphia based playwright. Oh, that's wonderful! I was just going to ask if you ever have some playwrights come to your guys's shows, if they're if they're locals or if they're people that you know. So that's. Yeah. Yeah, well, and we were actually super excited. I mean, obviously, Oscar Wilde isn't coming to see a woman of no. 
unfortunately preoccupied. But Judith um, is actually visiting the United States right now. A, a college, I think, out in Ohio is doing one of her works. So she was here last week and she was able to come to the opening night and to meet some of the members of the cast of, of her plays that are coming up in May. So that was super exciting for us. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have the same kind of core group of uh, cast members or do you do a lot of auditions? Because I know a lot of companies, you know, kind of have a group of people. Well, the Playhouse where Stacey works, you know, mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of the same people just because it's a, a very community based theater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have that or or I guess a core? What is it called? Uh, we do sort of almost have almost have a rep company like there. We do have people right. that we use every season. Um, in a variety of, and sometimes actually one of our actresses who was in one of the shows, it was in Penelope at this year is directing or, or directed for us last year. Two of our actresses who are in Penelope at are directing later in the, are directing our one acts later in the season. Um, so we do have a core group that we tend to go back to, but we really do like to bring in fresh voices, different perspectives. So mm-hmm. we, you know, we do, we try to try to mix it up. I love it. Like this one, I think woman of no importance is like 50, 50, new faces and sort of PBTC vets. Um, so, and we also, we love to give them the opportunity to try something new. If, you know, somebody comes in and wants acts and wants to direct, we try to give them that opportunity or if they want to design. So we really try to encourage people to grow their skill set. They might so- right. find something else that they love. Yeah, yeah. I'm super excited. The two, um, the two young folks who are doing... Um, who are directing the the one acts have both been, they both acted with us, started with us two years ago. They're both in their twenties. They're both really excited about, you know, um, you know, trying a new, trying a new, um, muscle. So. Do you ever direct there? I actually direct the majority of the plays there. This is the first year that I'm only directing one of the plays, um, which is, been a learning experience for me. Like this is the first, <laughs> this show is the first show I was ever only the artistic director on. Um, <laughs> and it was, it, I was like, I don't have anything to do right now. <laughs> <laughs> is it or is it like even more stressful because you have to like let so much go? Um, it's, it's kind of both. It was, you know, I mean, because of 018, I was like, there's no way I did it last year with 017. I was directing and I was wardrobe supervising. I was like, there's no way I can do that and do two op- do all of the operas at the TLA. That's that would be insane. Um, and it's been great because it's given me the opportunity to observe another director. It's a, uh, Polly Edelstein, who is the founding director, founding artist director of the Philadelphia Women's Theater Festival, is directing mm-hmm. of no importance. And it's been really neat to get to see somebody else's style mm-hmm. um, and sort of you know go, oh, that's a that's a thing that I could incorporate into my practice. Um, but it is sort of stressful to realize that there are decisions that aren't mine. <laughs> yes. But you still have to like, support oh, them no, and that's help. not the way I would do it, but that's it's not <laughs> <show>. <laughs> so I feel like it's it's always a blessing and a curse. And I've spent so much of my career stage managing. And so when I do step into like a production management position, mm-hmm. and especially as I do at Opera Philadelphia, um it is wonderful because then I get to observe other stage managers and how they do things. But at the same time, you're right. I'm always like, that's not exactly how I would have worded that email. I wouldn't have, you know, but you know, it's, you learn. And from every single stage manager that I've worked with in that sense, especially, I learned so much from them and, and yeah. so many things that they've done that I'm just like, oh my God, I would have 
I would have never, never thought to handle it that way or to do it that specific, um, even that way of paperwork. Right. But it always works, you know? And so it's, it's, it's just wonderful to watch other people and to not always be the one, not in charge, but be the one stage managing because then I can't, I feel like I learn so much more when I'm not stage managing because I get to watch them do it. Right. Cause so, you have, you have the brain space to absorb other people's process. Yeah. 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 You said something about having nothing to do as artistic director. Do you go to a lot of the rehearsals and tech process or do you kind of like stay back and let them, let it, them do rehearsals themselves? It depends on the director. When it's some of our younger directors, I'll go more often just so that I can be a backstop for them and mm-hmm. almost almost function as an assistant director. Um, you know, hey, have you thought about this? Are you keeping an eye on that? Um, in this case, you know, a bunch of the rehearsals conflicted with 018. So because we like lived at the TLA for two yeah, weeks. Yeah, because we pretty much moved in. Um, I saw a lot more of you than I did of my children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I do, yeah, I do try. I also don't want, you don't want to make people feel like you're looking over their shoulder. Right. Um, You know, I really try. I see my job as the artistic director when I'm not directing is to be the sounding board and to be the backstop and to, you know, to be the support network. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, I sort of try to base it off of what I feel like the director wants. Mm-hmm. Just feel them out a bit. And then... yeah. 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 I don't want, ever want anybody to think that I'm hovering over their shoulder or checking up on them or sneaking right. around or doing things behind their back. Like that, that, that is not an atmosphere of trust. <laughs> Nothing good comes from that. It makes I everyone that conversation... Sorry, go on, Stacey. I, I said, no, it just. It just makes everybody feel stressed because then they're like, what are we doing wrong? She has to be here because right. obviously she doesn't trust us. And you're like, no, really, I'm bored. I'm just hanging out. Right. <laughs> right. <It's good. laughs> yeah. Uh, do you guys, not you guys, do you do most of the hiring for designers and production team? Or do you have a group of people who hires? Um, we've discovered that it is best for me to work with somebody else in the hiring process because I get super excited by people in interviews. <laughs> Hire everybody. Hire everybody. They're all so good. Um, so often if, um, if my, Chris, my managing director can't be in on the interview, um, Allie, our stage manager, who's also sort of our stage manager slash production manager, um, we'll sit in on the interview or I'll interview somebody and I'll be like, Hey, check this person out. Tell me what you think. I never thought of having somebody else. Well, when I was hiring at Tri-Cities Opera, I was the production manager and I was kind of like all things tech. And so yeah. I did all the hiring, but yeah, you're right. It would have been awesome if I had like somebody else to bounce, bounce things off of like, I kind of like this person, but I don't know, you know, if they're going to quite fit with this organization or with this director or, you know, Plus you have different I, least, things. There's different things to ask. When I was at the Norris for years, uh, Greg and I would almost always do interviews together because I was more interested in, uh, are you going to show up on time? Are you going to fit in with the crew? And he was more, he knew more, like, especially if it was a sound person, about actual sound questions that I wouldn't have known the answer to. 
And and then oftentimes it was good because then afterwards when they'd leave, we'd be like, okay, this person versus this person. I was like, I like this person because of these reasons. And he'd like someone for different reasons. And then we'd figure out, you know, pay and who would work best together and things like that. Because by myself, I would just be like, everybody's good. Yeah. You're hired. You showed up to the interview. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm pretty gullible. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I hire people and then I figure out, you know. Most of the time, if I can't, if I don't like them or they didn't work out, I just like cover for them. So, right, right. And I'm just for me, like the single hardest part of this job is the thank you so much for auditioning. We don't have a role for you at this time email. Yes. So, I'm really, really bad at being this is a thing you love to do and you can't do it with us right now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. So, I always try to do that. And, and there's always conversation like on, the stage management Facebook page I belong to where you're, you know, you go through all these interviews and then even if you don't get the job, people just want to know they don't get the job as opposed to being right. Right. Hang on. And so when I was hiring, I felt it really important to tell the people no, just as it was important to tell the people yes, because they're waiting to psych myself up for that day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a really hard one. Especially if they ask why. And it's like, well, no specific reason. Just I could only hire one person and five people came out. So yeah. Yeah. I had yeah. to choose one a, person. Come and audition for us again. Come and apply with us again. You know, yeah. this isn't this isn't a forever no. This is a just right now no. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's something actors, not just actors, like everybody, but I feel like actors is the big one because they put so much out there to audition. And Absolutely. Because most crew people don't audition. You go in for an interview, but you're not memorizing lines and dressed up and, you know... And all of that stuff. And it's like, no, you were excellent. It's just this part isn't exactly what we were going for. Like, yeah, it's it's not that you're bad. There's nothing bad about what you just did. (laughs) Yeah, I'm constantly telling people um, there's a great Brian Cranston interview somewhere where he talks about he started getting work when he realized that the job of the audition was not the point of the audition was not to get the job. The point of the audition was to do the audition. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm constantly telling people, you know, people, it's just about just come in and and do your do your best and do your honest truth in that moment. And there are so many different factors that go into putting a cast together that it really is almost never you. Like you are never the reason you don't get cast. Yeah, very yeah. true. Have you ever? I've never hired performers, but have you ever like seen somebody in an audition and not hired them? But then like two shows later, been like, you know what? This person was really awesome and and invite them back for an audition. Oh, yeah. And we do season auditions. So we'll we'll hold an audition okay. in like, July for the whole to cast the whole season. Um, and so what inevitably happens is somebody winds up with a conflict that they didn't know that they had. Um, you know, like you hire somebody in July for the May show and in April, you know, in, in February, they send you an email saying that they can't mm-hmm. do it. So yeah, there's definitely sort of like, there's always a, there's always a, a list of people who you wished you could have made fit. Mm-hmm. And then that's when those emails start going out. <laughs> that's yeah. That must be hard to do it that far in advance because half the time I know what my schedule is six months in advance. And sometimes I'll get an email being like, Hey, are you free next week? You know, right. and you just kind of have to figure out what Either you stick with the contract you originally signed or what you think is best for your career or, you know, works best for your family. Right. Or what my husband says I can do. (laughs) (laughs) You've been gone for six months. Time to stay home. Yeah, yeah. 
I've turned down three contracts because he wants me to stay home for a while, which I get, you know, I've been gone yeah. for seven months. It totally makes sense. But, but that's, it's again, hard to tell those people being on the other end, you know, it's hard to tell a company, no, I can't come work for you, even though I really want to. And I really love what you do, but yeah, you know, yeah. I've been it's, gone for a while. For it's a while. all a negotiation. It's all, and I think, oh, did I talk to somebody about this recently or I read it that when I was on the other side of the table. So being on the other side of the table really helps you see the different perspective. Oh, yeah. And so I've talked to a couple performers who have moved more into like an admin position. And they're like, once they become on this side of the table and are watching other people audition, it helps them audition later because they know what people are looking for and what they're not looking for. And it kind of makes you less nervous or less self-conscious about yeah I think so. auditioning because you're like well like Stacey said it's it's not a necessarily about who you are it's about the role mm-hmm. and I found that really really helpful when I started interviewing people because I was just as nervous interviewing people as I was being interviewed because the decision that I make you know could make or break my season or make or break a show if I hire somebody that's wrong you know and there's so much pressure on you so ever since I went through that process for two years I feel I feel not that I have more power when I go into an interview, but I just feel more confident going into the interview because, yeah. you know, like yeah. you said, it's, it's all in a negotiation. Yeah. So it's absolutely. great. So you said that was your least favorite. What's your favorite thing about being an artistic director? My, Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's a couple. Um, one of my favorite things about being an artistic director is seeing the choices that we've made affect our audience that's so interesting yeah like the show or the cast or yeah yeah like like seeing seeing the audiences come out at the end of the performance and and knowing that what we did got inside of them for even if it's just until they get to the bar um right drink um you know knowing that my whole my belief is that uh, story is what makes us human. Like animals, we know that animals use tools now. We know that animals feel emotions. Like all that, all those things that used to be the thing that made us human aren't aren't it. But the 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 fact that we connect with each other through story, mm-hmm. story is what allows us to empathize with one another. Um, and theater is story. You know, theater is is the shaman at the campfire. It's the you know, it's the the wagon coming into the town square. And it's so knowing that our stories are doing their jobs on our audience is is the thing that makes the biggest difference to me and makes me go, yes, I'm doing the right thing. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so many for years before people wrote things down or recorded or whatever, history was passed down by story and your mm-hmm. heritage was passed down by story. And mm-hmm. yeah, my puppy's not telling anybody anything besides play with me like (laughs) there's no story in what he's saying so i like that that's very cool thank you twin do you guys ever do talkbacks after shows um it depends on the show is talkbacks are such a weird thing Um, i agree from a production standpoint i'm always like we want to go home audience and audiences are so so strange about them i think people are afraid to be singled out um and so it's like you know you need one good laugher in an audience to get the people to get people going Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know you need one person who's not afraid to laugh um or clap right or clap um and you know because people you know 
people come out and be like, oh, I love the show. And I'm like, but you didn't laugh. Uh, <laughs> you looked miserable through the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. And I think talkbacks vibrate on the same level for people. Like they, we're so used to consuming our entertainment through screens where nobody can talk back to us that I think it freaks people out sometimes when all of a sudden the people on the stage start, start talking back to them. <laughs> I never thought about it that way. Um, so we'll do talkbacks when there's a, a specific, one of the things we do is we partner with a different charity for every show and we raise money for different, the charities that connect with the show in some way. Um, we did a show last year that was about domestic violence, you know, a, a light comedy. Um, <laughs> so we partnered with a group called Laurel House, which is a, a domestic violence shelter and counseling service here in Montgomery County. And so one of their counselors came out and did a talk back, which um, I think was hugely helpful and and really gave people a, it, it gave it a direction and a focus, but just general talkbacks tend to be, how did you learn all those lines? Or how did you remember what to pick that up? Yeah. That's yeah. true. When I've done shows that are like a new work and you get to talk about a specific aspect of it, then those I actually find helpful. But when it's just, you know, the company that I used to be at every Sunday show, they wanted to do a talk back. And it was like, but there, there's no point. Like it's not the same people show up, the same people ask the same questions. Yeah. You know, we're all really tired. We just want to go home. Right. You know. Yeah, the last talk back I went to uh, was at Boston Court out here in Pasadena. And it wasn't about the actors. It was uh, one of the co-artistic directors, the set designer, the lighting designer, and the sound designer. And mm. out of the 100 people who were at the, the show that day, I think maybe five of us stayed around to talk. Right. And I did because I knew two out of three of the designers. And, right. But I didn't, I didn't really ask any questions because I, I know how theater works. Um, and the people who were asking the questions and bringing up stuff, some of them, I was like, no, like, what the hell? <laughs> then I felt awkward. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I just waited till it was done and then just talked to them one-on-one -on -one, uh, because, yeah. you know, it was better for me that way. But yeah, normally, yeah, talkbacks, like. I don't think anybody like, like the talkback in theory is great. In practice, it just makes everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Now, if it's a group of kids coming in and they're all theater kids, that's one thing. But adults, like, yeah, yeah don't yeah. care much for them. Yeah. Yeah. The Arden here in Philly does talkbacks after every performance of their kids' shows. And those are great because the kids ask funny, smart, insightful questions. And, mm -hmm. you know, it sort of inspires a love of the art in them or encourages a love of the art. But mm -hmm. grownups, you know, grownups want to go get the car and pay the babysitter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. unless it's something specific like you said like you know domestic violence or some kind of charity or something specific to that show yeah and not just like the show in general yeah yeah i mean on for the penelope ad which is um it is the story of the odyssey retold from penelope's point of view so there's and the, and the maid's point of view so it's very feminist and very female centered and very sort of of the moment so we're you know we might do some you know discussion groups based on the play um mm -hmm. they wouldn't necessarily be traditional talkbacks they would be more like you know audience venting sessions <laughs> <laughs> i like that <laughs> We do need that. I think yeah. when I did when I did Hydrogen Jukebox the second time we had 
sessions afterwards um, that were, they were talkbacks, but at the same time, I insisted on having like one orchestra, well, there's a 15 piece band, but one person from the band state and somebody from the artistic production side be at all of them. And then one or two performers, because that piece, the way we staged it talked about, you know, uh, the end of somebody's life. And there was a lot, there's a lot in Hydrogen Jukebox. And so I always insisted that there was more than just performers on stage because it, it would bring up discussions about music or artistic things or about how people related to each other and, you know, yeah. The, how people deal with the end of life. And, and it was a much more relevant topic of conversation than when we did Hansel and Gretel, which was just like, <laughs> not much to talk about in that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a storyline and all. Maybe eating, eating children. But yeah. but when, when we had kids come to those talkbacks, those were really awesome because they wanted to know like how we did all the magic backstage, you know, yeah. which that was really fun. So when there was kids, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And I like talkbacks. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier that this theater is like a whole family event from you and people who are in it. So you have two children? I have four. Four children. And are they all interested in theater? Um, well, to varying degrees. Um, my oldest is um a fencing coach and he has done some stage combat choreography for us. He's 18. Um, and then as you know, my next oldest is um wants to be a stage manager. Yes, this is the one that I like. Yes. (laughs) Um, So Dylan is very involved. Um, And Riley and Dylan have both, you know, been up on the scaffold, hanging lights, running cable. Um, Basically, once you're tall enough to reach the the pipe from the scaffold, you get to hang lights. Um, (laughs) Get to, have um, to, kind of uh, same thing. Right. (laughs) Um, And then Declan has been in a couple of productions with us, and he's sort of helped me out with summer camps and things like that. And Siobhan, who is my youngest, um, has danced with our kids' core every year in the Shakespeare um, and has done some of the camps with us, too. So, yeah, pretty much they're all they're not necessarily all interested in making theater a career, but it's basically they know that it's part of the deal. (laughs) But one thing that your kids have that most people we've talked to and definitely Stacey and I fall in this category didn't even know that that existed, that you could make it a career. You yeah, know, and and your kids all now, besides knowing that you can make a career out of this, they probably know many other things that you can actually make a career out of that would not dawn on normal people. That seems kind of weird, <laughs> but you know, like oh, you know, you're traditional right. not theater people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yes, we we do not live in the real world here. <laughs> yeah, no, I I agree with that. But to, but your kids now know that they can make a career out of doing the arts or uh, fencing or you know so many yeah. other things that just aren't in the real world's real world people's minds. How do you say that? Yeah. Well, they <laughs> normal, normal yeah. people's normal scope people. of vision. Yeah. <laughs> the muggles. Normal. Yeah. They don't, they know <laughs> that they don't have to go to work Monday through Friday, nine to five, because that's not how theater works. So if they want to, sure, but they don't have to, there's, you know, you can get up and run around and fight and box and make believe and dressing costumes and all that stuff and make make stage blood i think which is what what what, would you say dylan did a little bit ago stage blood for us for um uh queens of the night yeah 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 that's a big thing you know i love what i do and my kids are lucky enough to have parents who love what they do and to see that you don't you can have a job that you that you love and can still support you somewhat (laughs) 
much I think as that's so arts. important because so many people are just miserable in their jobs. And, and, you know, we've all worked a miserable show, but that show yeah. usually ends after a couple of weeks. And, you know, I always say how lucky I am to wake up in the morning and like be excited to work, to be excited to yeah. turn on my, my phone and my email. And the first thing I do is check my email. My husband's like, can you stop working? And I'm like, no, this is what I love to do. Like, <laughs> I am excited to do this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even if you're on a show with that's just a hard show, it goes away in a couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> that's not the best part. 40 years of doing something you hate because it's what you need to do to survive. Yeah. Yeah. That well, is like always, you then, it always changes. I don't get bored because even though I'm building sets for different shows, it's a different set. It's different material. Yeah. It's a different uh, style. It's, yeah, it changes all the time. So I'm not like, oh, good, building another flat today. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for me, so much of, you know, in the wardrobe gig, it's all people based. So, you know, yeah. you know, you hear those stories, you know, there's a whole websites devoted to annoying coworkers. I'm like, eh, you know, if somebody really annoys me, they're gone in a couple of weeks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can work with anybody for six weeks. <laughs> on the yeah. same, although on the opposite side, though, you, you, there's so many people that I like fall in love with, and I just like really love working with. And then I yeah. get so sad when I have to leave because yes. I'm like, no, nah, I won't see these people. Yes, that's very true, Joe. But then they come back. The good ones always come back. That's true. That's true. That's what I like about festivals. That's what I like about going. Now I've been back to so many companies multiple times. So I keep working with the same people, or you know. We do yeah. podcasts, so then I could call the people that I like and be like, yeah. hey, let's talk for an hour because I haven't seen you in a month. So. Exactly. That, that's the real reason why we started the podcast. That's to the one, yeah. having friends. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we miss that we want to talk to again? That way. Oh, I feel honored. <laughs> do you have any crazy stories from, from dressing rooms? Because you do hear that all the time about, you know, there's a... a famous tenor who used to have a full rotisserie chicken with him in the dressing room at all times and would go on stage and just like stick it in his pocket so like every day you would just find like chicken pieces in his pockets have you ever had anything crazy like that happen no I've been really lucky um almost everybody that I've worked with has been super super awesome I did and it's not that she wasn't awesome but I did a a a tour where the the um the lead was totally freaked out that she was losing her voice and was totally in her head about it. So she didn't speak mm-hmm. at all. I was, I was dressing her and the only time she spoke was on stage. I have no idea what she sounded like in real life. For the entire <laughs> week, we communicated with hand gestures. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, was fine. I'm like, I don't blame you for, you know, that, that's your, how you make your living. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, I don't need you to really talk yeah. to be like, put on this shoe. Like just right, right. She would point to a thing, and I would put it on her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. You know, and people are like, "Isn't that driving you crazy?" I'm like, "I'm getting a lot of reading done." <laughs> <laughs> it's very calm back here. Oh, to listen to gossip. <laughs> right. Very soothing. Um. But no, I, I'm trying to think. No, my no. Everybody like nothing crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even the opera divas have been normal. Well, that's just it. Like, even, well, in the opera world, especially, I was so worried when I first started about opera divas. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing opera. And it's actually, like, chorus members, I feel, that are more divas sometimes <laughs> than the actual divas. Right? Yeah. I feel the same way, just, like, in musicals and straight plays. I'm like, dude, why are you being such a pain? You have, like, two lines in a chorus. Like, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for the most part, the folks that are, like, your, 
headliner, headliner top name. They're really pretty easy to get along with. You just have to, you know, I think I told you, Cindy, you know, I refer to myself as a goat because there's this whole thing about um, thoroughbreds and that whole phrase, how to get your goat was about how they would put goats in with thoroughbreds to keep them calm. So if you wanted oh, to mess that. up, if, they, if they, you wanted to mess up your opponent's chances, you would steal his goat. <laughs> um, that's really awesome. like that's, that's my job. My job is to be the goat for these thoroughbreds who have to go out and, you know, <laughs> my every emotion bear on stage, you know, oh. however many times a week. So if you want me to be super chatty and friendly and hang out, I'll do that. If you want me to communicate by hand gestures, I'll do that too. Like I'm not the person who's standing out on stage. So I need to, I need to shift what I'm doing to make sure that they can do their best job. That's so awesome. I love goats. They're like my favorite animal. This makes so I much more them. sense now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it really does. <laughs> Cause I feel like that's half of my job sometimes is, you know, just managing people, but you know, this person I need to be sarcastic with and that's how they're going to work. And this person I need to hold their hand literally sometimes. And this person, you know, and that's what I do in order to get the job done. I don't physically do anything half the time as a production manager. I just make sure everybody else is happy and knows what they're doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, over the course of the the month at the TLA, I really, I was like, oh no, Cindy's a goat. She gets it. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my God. I'm going to start referring to myself as a goat. This is so awesome. (laughs) Well, you do kind think, of eat like a goat sometimes. Vegetarian, uh, yeah. a lot of grain and vegetables, things like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I like it. I used, I do like it. Yeah. I might have to bring my little goat with because I have a couple yeah. little stuffed goats. I'm going to have oh. to start bringing them to rehearsal. There yeah. Bring Russ Kolenkoff to rehearsal. I know. I have to go find him. I think. He, oh, no, I see him. He's in the office. No, I'm going to yeah, start bringing him office. to rehearsal. And then when people ask me, I'm going to tell them the goat story. <laughs> yes. This is so cool. Thanks, Bridget. See, I was telling somebody, I was like, every podcast we do, I learn so much. And this is this is the biggest thing I'm going to take away from this podcast. Goats. We're all going to be goats. An We're hour of talking to Bridget and Cindy takes away goats. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> well, this is a very important lesson that you have to know. This is why you have good, good wardrobe supervisors and good production managers, because you need to have the goats in the room. You do. This is why Cindy doesn't take the notes to write up the weekly uh, <laughs> little information on people on Wednesday and Friday. Goats. <laughs> Done. I, I took some notes. Well, no, I wrote down some of the questions I was going to ask because so that I, I knew what to ask. And I've gotten through almost all of them. Oh, yeah, good job. The only yeah, question I, I said... have is uh, about her husband, which you know, yes. is not very useful. But uh, so he's a musician, but also a TD. Nice. Well, he actually, he's a man of many skills, my husband. He, uh, when we met, he was a guitarist. And then through a very strange series of happenstances, wandered into teaching um, a course called EAST, which is Environmental and Spatial Technologies. It's a student-led, project-driven, technology-based course where his students identify needs in the community and then use technology to create solutions for them. So they'll map all of the fire hydrants for the volunteer fire company, or they'll, you know, do a drunk driving uh, uh, public service announcement for the, you know, the local police department. Um, So that's sort of- That's a really cool course. It's a super cool course. And his school is the only school in Pennsylvania that offers it. 
um, which gives him a little job security, which is That's nice. nice. When, when, when the other partner works in theater. <laughs> um, and then he's super handy. So he sort of fell into being our TD and our sound designer. Um, yeah, I mean, he's just sort of an all around Renaissance guy. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, he was super helpful. I'm fond of him. <laughs> That's good. Also very helpful. Yeah. Look, it's been 22 years. We might as well stick with it. <laughs> right. Way more work now to start over than to just keep going. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, the other comment I had was uh, out of out of four of your kids, two of them are names of my nephews, which I only have oh. three. So I was pretty impressed. Dylan oh, right. and Declan. Yes. Yes. Very cool. I've never even heard Declan before. Where do you guys get these names? Well, it's Declan Irish, actually, I think. Uh, Riley is my maiden name. So that's how Riley got his name. Dylan is named in honor of my... So Riley is named in honor of my father and my father-in-law. He's Riley Amon. Um, my, Dylan is named in honor of um, my mother and my mother-in-law. Declan um, is actually a Catholic saint who predated St. Patrick in Ireland. Um, and then he has my grandfather's name is James. So he is James is his middle name. And then Siobhan is Gaelic for gift from God, which was nicer than surprise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> we couldn't find the Gaelic word for surprise. So we went with gift from God. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I wanted them all to have Irish first names because it's a big part of sort of my family heritage. And when you go from Riley to Beauchamp, you got to get the Irish in there somewhere. <laughs> That's cool. Stacey, do you know where did, um, did, oh my God, I just forgot Kai's sister's name. Holly. Holly, did they get, did they get Declan from the same yeah. thing? Yeah. Yeah. Dylan and Declan are Irish. I don't know where Jack came from. <laughs> Doesn't quite fit with Jack Dylan pretty- and Declan. Jack can be pretty Irish. I know some Irish Jacks. Yeah, okay. I do too. Yeah, because there's Irish in the family and Scottish in the family, but they went with the Irish names. Easier to spell. Yeah. I mean, once you <laughs> figure out Declan, but because a lot of people don't just know it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just how it sounds, right? It okay. is how it sounds. Yeah. D-E-C-L-I-N. Yeah. Siobhan is the toughie. Siobhan's the one that trips everybody up. So how do you spell that? S-I-O-B-H-A-N. Oh, yeah. That's not how I spelled oh, yeah. it at all. That's not how I would have done it either, but okay. Yeah, we've pretty much locked her in the living between Boston and Baltimore. <laughs> Where people know how to spell it. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> that's very cool. And one more question. In your email, you mentioned that you do props sometimes for SNL? Um, yeah. Is that what you said? I, I, how, how, where does that even come from? Well, I overhire with an awesome company called Monkey Boys Productions. Um, they are a puppet prop and costume fabrication company. Um, that's a 20-minute walk from my house, so it's super perfect. Um, and they, um, they actually started, the, uh, it's two puppeteers, um, Mark Petrosino and Michael Latini, who... Um, puppeted um the Audrey two puppets on the on one of the national tours of Little Shop um and so that's sort of how they started their business was they built a set of those and rented them out and then you know they were doing things for people they were building props and puppets and stuff and 
they caught the attention of the folks at SNL. And so they get some of the specialty props and the overhire stuff they did. We've just built the, um, the chili pepper and the biscuit from last week's episode. Hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, so they'll get a call on Wednesday and Wednesday, you know, I'll get a phone call at 1030 on Wednesday night and say, Hey, can you come in? And then we work like crazy Thursday, Friday. And sometimes it makes it on air and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> wow. That's fast. Of time yeah, and money for maybe not on air. It's yeah. It's kind of insane. Well, so. I mean, I guess that's, that's the way it works. That's how. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times at the TLA we will get an email and be like, by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, can we have these 53 new props? And like, I was constantly getting phone calls from Jen and Amanda being like, what the fuck? It's 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it happened. And then, you know, we yeah. had the props the next day. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's the job, you know. You, you mean, the skit has to go to air. They need the stuff for the skit. So, right. Yeah. And I guess sure. you can't plan it that far in advance because you're doing a new skit every week. So, right. Yeah, that's then that's the thing that for them, like there are weeks when they don't get any, they don't need anything from Monkey Boys. And then there are weeks when like, every time the phone rings, it's SNL adding stuff to the order. So. <laughs> yeah, their, their website world. has quite a few interesting people dressed up as like soda cans and dinosaurs and puppets behind them. Oh, yeah. There's a Yoda. They there's a couple Star Wars ones. They're very exciting. Yeah, they built a totally they built a couple of these super awesome um, animatronic dinosaur puppets for these field station amusement parks that are like dinosaur amusement parks. So they've built like these baby T Rexes that can be puppeted by one person. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they'd make some. It's and that's actually sort of like my secret favorite job because I get to go there and not have to make any decisions and make really cool stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's excellent. That is so awesome. I always want jobs like that. I'm always like, oh, this is going to be a really easy job. But it never no. is. But in my head, I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm not going to have to make decisions. I won't be in charge. I can just do yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're super awesome. That's <laughs> really cool. Well, I think we're getting close to the hour. Uh, so our last question, which I didn't prep you about, but you've listened to our podcast. So <laughs> do you have any twin stories? I don't actually have a twin story. But the reason that we perform where we perform is thanks to a mother of twins. Um, ah. We had, um, I live in the town that I grew up in, which is super helpful for um, making people connections and things. So um, Mrs. Penny Cutler was, is um, on the vestry at the Church of Our Savior where we perform. And she has daughters who are a year younger than I am who are twins. Um, identical twins and Mrs. Cutler, yay. yay! Mrs. Cutler had um, approached me about maybe performing in their space sometime, and five years later, <laughs> we're still performing. There you are. Yes. So, mother of twins, um, we are where we are. That still counts. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is so exciting. We're going to have to like try to get your husband on or, or one of yes. your kids on at some point to see how <laughs> their perspective is. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I want to hear what their perspective is. <laughs> <laughs> Let me live in my bubble. <laughs> we didn't have to listen cool to that I don't know if you listened to it with uh, Brett, who she, she did War Stories with me last year, but she was the scheduler this year at Upper Philadelphia. Um, we did it with her and her husband because they're both in theater. So it was a really oh. interesting interview because they kept 
kind of like Stacey and I talk over each other, but they kept like finishing each other's sentences and talking <laughs> over each other and be like, yeah. what be do like, you remember about this? And so yeah, that's not how that <laughs> happened. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, depending on which one of my children you talk to, you'll get a very dramatic version of, sorry, the dog is scratching. Um, <laughs> you'll get a very dramatic version of events, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, well, you know, they are in theater. So what do you expect? <laughs> exactly. Very true. Very true. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us. And I hope we keep in touch. And uh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to try to come down to Philly soon. Maggie and I want to go see a, um, a Martha Graham Cracker show. So we're oh. going to get a whole bunch of TLA people back together and go watch a Martha Graham Cracker show. Yeah, that should be fun. Those costumes are ridiculous, the ones I've seen on uh, <laughs> their no. Facebook page, their Instagram page. Dio's ridiculous, but yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, yes. so I'm going to yeah, I'm gonna make a trip down to Philly at some point, and I'll let you know, and, and hopefully I'll come see one of your guys' shows. Come in February, come see Penelope Ad. It's going to be full of female rage. It's going to be awesome. Nice. <laughs> Twin, you should do that. What else are you doing in February? Yeah, Uh, I'm gonna be might be freezing my ass off in Omaha right now in February, but I'll have to look and see when it finishes and then I'm done. Yeah, (laughs) great. Well, thank you so much, Bridget. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.